The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21.6. Neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and truth, as in private families daily and in secret, each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken, when God, by his word or providence, calleth thereunto. Well, as we go into our catechism sermon now, let us ask for God's illumination on the text we had read in Hebrews 12 as we prepare to to hear his word. God, we come before you in the name of Christ. Uh, You are a holy God. You are a merciful Father, and you make yourself known on Mount Sinai and even now on Mount Zion. We thank you that you've given us your word, and that by your word we can come to know you more. So we ask that you bless our time in your word now as we speak of your worship. May we come to understand it better, to appreciate it more. And may we as your body be built up and edified, and may you be glorified. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this catechism sermon this evening is uh, based off of chapter 21, verse uh, 0.6 there in the Westminster Confession, and also largely tied to what we have here in Hebrews chapter 12. So we have here in Hebrews chapter 12 a passage that touches on worship, on the worship of God, what it is that we partake in every week. We'll see that this is primarily speaking about public worship in a certain way. And it may not seem readily apparent to you as as we we read Hebrews 12 and as you start to think about it. But trust as we look at God's word here in Hebrews and as we reflect even on the the confession. uh, we'll, We'll come to see what Hebrews would have us to believe about what it is that we're doing right now. And we'll come to see particularly why the Westminster Divines would tell us that in the public assemblies, worship is to be observed more solemnly. So I trust we'll come to see what that means. As we look at God's worship, as it's brought out here, it's not so much the, uh, the elements that we're speaking of. Not so much the things that we do or the things that we don't do. But what we're looking at this, this afternoon is what it is that's going on as we participate in the worship of an eternal and ever-present God. What it is that is actually happening. And so we'll talk about worship. We'll talk about that worship is more than just that time in your service when you sing songs to God. That worship is, is broader than that. There's more to worship than just that. Jeremiah Burroughs, who was a, a well-known Puritan minister in his day, actually helped was at the assembly that helped write the, the Westminster Confession, He would often exhort his congregation, he would often tell them to learn what it is you do when you come to worship God. To learn what it is you do when you come to worship God. And so I trust and I hope that this passage in Hebrews will help us do that very thing. Help us learn what it is that we do when we come to worship. So Hebrews 12, in summary, it teaches us that our worship... Even our worship right now is a heavenly worship. It is a heavenly worship. 
And so we'll see that that's why the confession will tell us that these, this public assembly worship corporately is to be held more solemnly. And so we're going to look at this in, in two points briefly. We're going to look at the concept of worship, what worship is, and then we're going to look at this contrast that is brought out in Hebrews chapter 12, this contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And so as we come to speak of worship, we're going to be helpful to lay some groundwork here. What it is that we, we speak of when fundamentally, fundamentally we're talking about the concept of worship itself. It'd be helpful to describe what, what worship is, where that very word comes from. Etymologically, the word worship that we have in our modern parlance comes from an old English word, which is called verskip. Sounds kind of German. You, you hear that German old English influence. And what that means, verskip, what it translates to modernly is worth shape. It's giving worth, shaping that which is worthy. So it's giving worth to something. It could be even called giving honor to something. And if you look at historic definitions of our forefathers and what they called worship, more or less they would call worship something like worship is an honoring of God. Worship is an honoring of God. If we look at Psalm 66, verse 1 and 2, it says, Make a joyful shout to God all the earth. Sing out the honor of His name. Make His praise glorious. Or even well-known Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. So honoring God. It's synonymous with exalting His name, with praising Him. It's worship. So obviously it's it's common as well to speak of worship as, as glorifying God. As bringing Him glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism famously asks in question one, What is the chief end of man? And she found us to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So we are called in all of life, and particularly in worship, to glorify God. Now, I, I, I want to address something that for much of my Christian life was, was difficult for me to wrap my head around. Maybe some of you had the same thoughts. I could well understand that we were called to glorify God in all of our life and in worship itself. But I would often ask myself, so am, I, am I adding glory to God in any sort of way? I mean, what does it mean that I'm, I'm glorifying God? I mean, surely I can't give God any glory that He doesn't already have. So what does it mean when, when we say that we glorify God, we bring glory to God? Like, what, what's actually happening here? Well, it helps to see glory, the glory of God, at least as twofold. There's the essential glory of God. And there's the declarative glory of God. There's the essential glory of God and the declarative glory of God. So the essential glory of God is that glory of God, that that magnificence, that splendor, that wonder that He has within Himself. It's the glory of His being, the glory of His essence. It's the glory of who He is. And we as, as humans, we often describe that in terms of attributes. We use the attributes of God to describe that glory of who He is as He is. And of course, we do not add to this. We do not add to the essential glory of God. It's intrinsic to Him. You see, God is glorious. He is mighty. He is worthy as He is, with or without us in the picture. 
So we do not add to the essential glory of God in any way. But the other kind of glory is God's declarative glory, where we can make known His glory. We can show forth His glory. We can reflect His glory. Think of Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. So this is the declarative glory of God, that we sing out His praises, we declare His wonders, we show forth His glory and His might. That's what we do when we glorify God. And now God calls us, as we know, to an instituted time of worship each and every Lord's Day, where we gather together publicly, and we come and we worship God, we bring Him glory and honor and praise. But the fundamental question what we'll address here is what happens when we worship. We all come together. We know we do certain things. We sing songs. We hear the word of God. But what's actually happening when we worship? In short, during worship, we meet with God. In summary, to summarize it all, in worship, we meet with God Almighty go through some text here to help us understand this. Think of Exodus 25. So this is as they're building the tabernacle in the the Old Covenant. Exodus 25, verse 21 says, You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you, and there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. It says, There I will meet with you. Okay, so that's, that's the tabernacle, but that's the old system. That's with priests and sacrifices. And What about now? We're not in the old system anymore. So what about now? Well, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2 says, We have such a high priest, that is Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, And not man. So there is this true tabernacle, which is in the heavens. We are pointed upwards. Christ, seated at the right hand in heaven right now, he is ministering in the true tabernacle. The true tabernacle is in heaven. You see, this is where, if we could say, real worship takes place. This is where it was always meant to take place. Nearest to God. Not in man-made tabernacles but in the true tabernacle, in heavenly places, in heaven itself. And because of our union with Christ, as we spoke on much of this morning, Christ is our great high priest. He brings us upward with him, and we worship with him in heaven itself. You see, this was always the intention. As we reflect on biblical history, the garden itself was believed to have sat atop a mountain. Think of Moses climbing Mount Sinai to meet with God. As we referenced earlier in, in, the, in the service this morning, Psalm 24, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord. Jerusalem itself sat atop of a hill. It was always intended to instruct us to turn our gaze upwards to heaven itself. The worship of God, the true worship of God, was always meant to be in heavenly places. And in Christ there is a way in which we are brought up to heaven with Him in public worship to meet with God Almighty. And so that brings us now to look more closely at Hebrews 12. 
about this contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Verses 18 through 21 of our passage here in Hebrews 12 speaks of what the Israelites were experiencing when they came to Mount Sinai. Exodus 19 speaks of this right before the Ten Commandments are given. The Israelites come to Mount Sinai and they experience something magnificent, even terrible and fearful. I want to read just a portion of Exodus 19 just just to give us an idea of what Hebrews is alluding to. So Exodus 19, verses 16 through 20, say, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. (coughs) The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. This is what Hebrews is referencing here. When it speaks of what they experienced, it speaks of things not to be touched, of fire, of darkness and gloom and tempest. A tempest is a violent, windy storm. This is what the Israelites experienced as they came to Mount Sinai. And it says they heard this deafening trumpet. This is not a trumpet that they just happened to hear in the distance. This was a trumpet that was so loud it drowned out any other sound. And then after this, They hear a voice, a voice come unto them, unlike anything they'd ever experienced in their entire life, as this was the audible voice of God that they heard. And as we read in Exodus 20, earlier this evening, they begged for it to stop. It was such an experience that they begged for it to stop. They could not take it. They said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen But do not let God speak to us lest we die. They were so fearful they thought they would die if they heard God speak to them, if they experienced this anymore. And so this was the response. It says even Moses was terrified. Even Moses was terrified. Now, we hear all of that. We hear all of that, what they experienced at Sinai. And perhaps, maybe as we think about what we're in right now, what we experience right now, Maybe we have a sense of relief, a sort of thought of, man, I'm glad I did not have to experience that. And perhaps maybe it would have been interesting to see, it would have been captivating to witness, to experience all that happened at Sinai. And perhaps if you could see through the eye of faith, it would have been something that would have stirred your, your love for the glory of the Lord, perhaps. But I think many of us, if we understand what they went through, our natural reaction is, I am glad I was not there at Sinai. I'm glad I'm here now. However, beloved, I think that's not actually what Hebrews 12 wants us to see. Because what, what, he's, what he's saying here in Hebrews is think of all of that. Think of all that they experienced at Mount Sinai, how fearful it was. And what he's saying is that what we have now is actually something greater. Something better. 
He's saying right now, what we experience right now is actually something more worthy of fear, more worthy of awe, more worthy of wonder. You see, in his argument here, in Hebrews chapter 12, he's actually arguing from the lesser to the greater. The lesser to the greater. He's saying Sinai, Sinai was actually the lesser. And what we have here in New Testament worship right now, what we are in the midst of every Lord's Day, is actually the greater. It's actually far more terrible, far more worthy of awe and wonder than Mount Sinai. What he describes here, what we read in Hebrews 12, is not just something that we go to in the future. This is not just something that happens when we die or when the end of the age comes. He's saying this happens now. He says this is happening right now. In public worship, heaven comes to us in a spiritual way. And in a spiritual way, we are drawn up to heaven itself because of our union with Christ. What does he say in verse 22 after he describes all that happened at Sinai? He says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. He doesn't doesn't say no. He doesn't say now you, you will come or in the future you will go to this place. No, he says you have come. You've already come here. You're here now. And so here today, this afternoon... In Madison, Indiana, on February 25th, you have come to something far greater than what the Israelites experienced at Mount Sinai. This is something far more wonderful than even Mount Sinai. You see, we are presently, we are presently in the heavenly Mount Zion when we worship. When we enter into the worship of the holy, heavenly, living God We don't just come to a place with four walls and a piano and a pulpit. We come to something more than that. We come to heaven itself. We think back to Moses. Moses, it says, at Sinai trembled with fear with what he saw. This is Moses. This is the man who had many close encounters with God. He spoke with God. He saw the burning bush. He saw the wonders, the miracles that happened in Egypt. And yet when he came to Sinai, it says in verse 21 that he trembled with fear. And so if Moses trembled with fear when he came to Mount Sinai, and we have something greater here now, what should our response be? I don't want us to miss here what it says in verse 23. It goes through this list of things. It says we come and to God. As I said earlier, that's that's the summary of public worship. That we come to God. In public worship, we meet with God. We are meeting with God Almighty. This is something that we can't take in with our senses right away. It takes a spiritual sight. It takes spiritual eyes to see this. To understand what it is that we partake of. It's more than what happens in these chairs. It's more than what happens in any church and anywhere around the world. This is something eternal, something transcendent even that that happens, that we are brought up into. We enter into the host of heaven with innumerable angels, with the assembly of the firstborn. We enter into the heavenly worship of God Almighty. That is what we are in the midst of now. And so as we speak of this, of the weight of worship, of what it is we're doing, this is not meant to scare you. 
This is not meant to, to sort of freeze you or just be some, some shock factor or some shock value to you. It's to help us see the weight of what worship really is, what's really happening. And so we can sense the privilege of what it is that we get to come to each and every Lord's Day. Beloved, this is a privilege that you get to come here each and every Lord's Day, that you get to meet with God and He comes to you. And just to bring us to reverence, indeed, because we can't reverence what we don't understand. If we don't understand what's, what's happening in worship, we can't be reverent about it. But at the same time, it should also induce joy. It should bring us to joy. Reverence and joy are not antonyms. They're not opposites. We are called to come into the house of the Lord to come meet with God reverently, but also with joy. as we recognize who God is, who we are, and what He has done for us, to, for us to be able to come and meet with Him. It should bring us, it should bring forth joy out of us for the privilege that we have. Meeting with God is indeed a privilege. It's something worthy of fear and awe. But beloved, it is something that is joyful. Reverence and joy are not at odds. They are dear, dear friends. And so some brief applications then as we come to understand our heavenly worship. Well, the result of this heavenly worship, we understand of the great privilege that we have it leads us to greater responsibility as well. To partake of this worthily, in a sense. We're exhorted to take this more seriously. That's why, as we read in the Westminster Confession of Faith, that in the public assembly, worship is to be conducted more solemnly. It does not mean we're all down and depressed, but that we have reverence with what it is that we're coming to. I want to point you to something as well that our forefathers picked up on. Westminster Confession of Faith, same chapter, 21, just the point before, point five of that same chapter, it's uh, the paragraph that speaks about different parts of worship, the elements of worship, things that normally or ordinarily make up worship. So it just lists off these things that we have in worship. It's the reading of Scripture, the preaching of Scripture, songs of praise, sacraments, right? All the normal things that we think would make up a worship service. But if you look closely... They include something that most of us probably have not thought of or we don't think of today. As they're giving off this slew of elements of all the normal things, they also say, and the conscionable hearing of the word of God in obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence. Right next to the reading of the word, the preaching of the word, song, and the sacraments, they put in there the conscionable hearing of the word of God. Now, in modern renditions of the Confession, when they update the language, they'll change conscionable to something like careful or conscientious. And so what our forefathers did, what they would say is that right next to all these elements, these normal things of worship, what is also almost, almost an element, almost an integral part of worship is your careful listening to the Word of God. Your careful hearing of the Word of God. It's almost as if if you don't do so, if you are not conscientiously, carefully hearing the Word of God, if you don't do that, it's almost as if there's something missing from the worship of God. It's not complete. It's missing an integral element. And so, we should give every effort 
to be reverent, to be attentive to the word of God in worship. It is our duty. It's a privilege. Now, of course, there are legitimate distractions we can say. If you have children that you are taking care of and dealing with and you're not able to as carefully or conscientiously hear the word of God, that is not an issue that is expected. But as much as we can, as much as we're able, we should carefully hear the word of God. That's our duty. Beloved, worship is the most important thing you do in your life. It is the most important thing you do in your life. Not because of the elements or the things that we do, but because in worship we meet with God. And it is a taste of what it is that we will do for eternity. Think of this. The sun in the center of our universe, that big star up there, it will burn your eyes out if you stare into it from 92 million miles away. So often we think we can casually stroll into the presence of its maker. This is a solemn thing we come to. A reverent thing. But indeed a joyful thing. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh Father, we come to you and we praise you for this opportunity to come and meet with you. God, help us to understand what it is that is going on here. May it sink in to us. May it move us. And God, may we see the beauty, the glory, the wonder, the awe of the privilege of coming before you in public worship. God, instill in us a greater reverence for worship and a greater joy for worship. And all of it, may we be formed more and more into the image of Christ. And may you be glorified. So in Christ's name we pray such things. Amen. Amen. Well, we go from there. We'll turn.